This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 12, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What could a President Trump do on the subject of American trade policy without consulting Congress? The unfortunate answer may be quite a lot. Dan Eikenson directs the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. He comments. With his uh, nominees for U.S. Trade Representative and uh, head of the Commerce Department, the president in general can do a lot to stymie positive trade relationships, bringing a lot of cases at the World Trade Organization, uh, for example. But what else can the president do? or And where are we unclear on what the president can do with respect to uh, making trade less friendly? I, I would say that uh the past several months has brought into focus uh, the idea that the president does actually have some powers to uh, to thwart trade uh, under the U.S. Constitution, uh, Article One, Section Eight. The authority to regulate foreign commerce is vested in the legislature. The, the executive branch has the authority to engage in foreign treaties, including negotiating trade treaties. Um, but over the years. Congress demonstrated itself to be a bit erratic uh, with respect to tariff policy. When we had Republican Congresses, tariffs tended to go up. When we had Democratic majority Congresses, uh, tariffs tended to come down. And this was, this was a battle that raged basically from the Civil War until about 1930, the, the famous, infamous Smoot-Hawley uh, Tariff Act. And it's quite a reversal. I mean, uh, over the over that, it's a long time period, of course, but that's quite a reversal for Republicans to have gone from this sort of protectionist uh, trade people to uh, Democrats. And it was credit to FDR. To FDR, certainly. I think, you know, uh, Republicans came to recognize between 1930, when Smoot-Hawley took effect, and 1934, Republicans uh, did an about-face, and uh, they recognized the damage done by the tariffs and the, and the tit-for-tat trade wars that ensued. In 1934, we had the Reciprocal uh, Tariff Act, which, in which Congress gave to the president some authority to negotiate uh, tariff reductions on a reciprocal basis with foreign countries. Uh, the, the Congress gave uh, a range, gave you know, defined its latitude to the executive, and, and he, he went out and negotiated. By 1974, that was 40 years after the Reciprocal Tariff Act, the nature of trade agreements started to change, and it wasn't just tariffs that were important. It was trade policy behind the border, things like the anti-dumping law. Uh, and and other um, statutes that affect trade, the Congress was um, skeptical and, and reluctant to give too much power to the president. And so at the time, they created what was then called Fast Track Trade Authority in 1974. Today, we call it Trade Promotion Authority. And under that those provisions, we've had several sets of Fast Track legislation over the years. Congress um, articulates its objectives for trade negotiations, gives the president parameters. The president can go out and negotiate the agreements and bring them back for an, for an up or down vote. So in that sense, the president has been given some authority. Also, there have been statutes over the years. So the Tariff Act of uh, 1930, the Smoot-Hawley Act, uh, created the anti-dumping law, uh, the countervailing duty law, something called the, the safeguards law, which enables the, the, the president to act unilaterally, but 
within statutory limits. So in other words, for, to, for the president to impose anti-dumping duties, certain conditions need to be met. There needs to be injury, material injury to a domestic in, uh, industry. There needs to be evidence of dumping. For anti-subsidy duties to take place under the countervailing duty law, the domestic industry needs to be injured, material injured, and there needs to be evidence of foreign subsidization. For a safeguards action to take place, there needs to be a, a surge in imports that cause serious injury to a domestic industry. So the president has latitude to uh, his agencies basically can uh, bring these cases and impose these duties. But it's, you know, it's, it's confined. His actions are confined. And they're subject to judicial review. But there are also other statutes uh, in which the president has some authority that have not really been used before. There's Trading with the Enemies Act, dating back to 1917, that enables the president to ban all imports or exports to seize assets in times of war. Um, we have other national security exemptions from the 1962 uh, Trade Expansion Act and the 1974 Trade Act that d define national security emergencies that would enable the president to do something. I president Nixon imposed 10 percent duties for a period of 150 days uh, on imports to address a balance of payments crisis with the Japanese. Uh, the Japanese, the yen had appreciated fairly dramatically. And the president was authorized under this provision of that law uh, to, to intervene. So many of these provisions haven't been tested. Correct. And so that's what's kind of scary about this. Um, there isn't a whole lot of precedence. It's unclear who would sue the president if, uh, in fact, he was overstepping his constitutional bounds. Uh, would Congress uh, take take action? Would there be a private course of action? Which courts would would hear this? What you know? What it's 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 kind of unclear what what could happen. Um, so we're in uncharted territory to a certain extent. Uh, Pre President Trump, some of the ideas he has articulated in, in his campaign rhetoric would seem to require him to act unilaterally um, to impose across the board. 10% or 25% or 35% duties on imports from Mexico or China uh, would require deviation from the, the normal set of tools at his disposal. But in, in terms of like his general rhetoric, it, uh, it, it seems that every action would be taken unilaterally. So they may not want to read too much into that. Yeah. I would say, though, some actions, some of these actions, like the anti-dumping cases or countervailing duty or safeguard actions, are sanctioned under the World Trade Organization. You know, when when we initiated the GATT in 1947, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and all of the subsequent multilateral rounds that it uh, that through which we achieved greater trade liberalization, ultimately producing the World Trade Organization in 1995. Um, We've, we, the member countries have agreed to tie their hands and to restrain themselves and to not act impulsively or unilaterally. But there are certain things that governments are allowed to do to react to emergency situations like surges in, in imports, like unfair trade. Um, so I, I call that, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm one of the biggest advocates for repealing the anti-dumping law. Uh, but I consider anti-dumping actions to be what I call, you know, legalized protectionism. It is within... Uh, um, the the rules of the of the international trade game. All right. So uh, there are actions that the United States can take that could could free other countries to raise their tariffs 
back to some historic level. To what extent can the president do that unilaterally? Yeah, I mean, if the president, uh, if any U.S. action is challenged at the WTO as violating our commitments, and many many of these actions would be challenged, we've never had a national security um, uh, based tariff imposed. Under under the WTO, governments are entitled to what's called a GATT Article 20 national security exemption, but it's it's charting new waters. And uh, if, in fact, we were to invoke that rationale for imposing duties, it's quite likely that other countries would do the same thing, and we would see ourselves in this tit-for-tat race to the bottom, and that's, that's problematic. What I'm hopeful about is just as Republicans in 1934 recognized the errors of their ways with the 1930 Smoot-Hawley Act, I suspect Trump uh, and uh, company would, they don't want the economy to tank uh, if they were to start engaging in, in this unilateralism and uh, the, the, the economy started to uh, suffer as a result, they could change course and, uh, and, and come back and embrace saner policies. The political benefits of uh, demonizing a company like Carrier or uh, Toyota or Ford or GM or any number of other companies. There are political gains to be had there. And then, but tracing the uh, price increases of individual products that we are now paying more for uh, because of some uh, trade restriction that's been unilaterally imposed, those are harder to trace. Yeah, uh, lots of factors uh, lead to the final determination of the price. Um, just to just to speak to Carrier and Ford and GM and Toyota, you know, there's Trump right now sitting on his couch, tweeting out, uh, you know, build the factory here or face a border tax. That is that is that has been effective. Uh, you'll notice over the past couple of months, business. The business community, which was uh, very skeptical of people like Peter Navarro and Bob Lighthizer when their names came up a few months ago, they said, oh, we can't have those, those, those players in Washington. Now they're endorsing these candidates, uh, these, these appointees, because they recognize that um, avoiding political retribution is, is an important thing to, to take into consideration. So there are a lot of in, like investment location uh, uh, determinants. Uh, including the regulatory environment, the tax environment, you know, access to skilled workers, et cetera. But uh, fear of political retribution is also important. When we're seeing, I mean, just the growth of K Street demonstrates that there are political dividends uh, that some, sometimes are more significant than the economic dividends of investing in the in the in the Rust Belt or in the heartland in R and D and and production facilities. Now, it it should be noted that in, in the in the chase to sort of uh, attract and keep multinational corporations and their production facilities in the United States. Uh, Donald Trump has also talked about the regulatory reform to try to make the U.S. relatively more attractive, but he's been uh, meeting that, of course, with uh, threats and not necessarily, as far as we know, idle threats at this point. Right. There's a positive, an affirmative way to make the United States an attractive place for investment. The United States is the world's number one destination for foreign direct investment, um, but we're, we're losing out. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, we had about 39, 40% of global FDI in the United States. Today, it's about 17%. Part of that is because the rest of the world is coming online and they're competing for that investment. But uh, 
we have uh, a lot of positive attributes. You know, generally speaking, the, the rule of law is, is, is abided and respected here. We have a skilled workforce. We have, despite uh, all of the uh, uh, lamentations, we have uh, pretty good infrastructure and uh, a lot of reasons. A good regulatory environment, by and large, it certainly can improve. Um, the president doesn't need to um, browbeat companies into staying here. He just needs to um, espouse the benefits and the virtues of, of investing in the United States. Give us your best case scenario as we continue this podcast series on trade and the incoming Trump administration uh, for what, you know, I, my personal thought was, hey, you, you declare a few victories, you know, kiss your biceps and uh, that allow trade and liberalize trade to the extent that it's possible to do. That could be a best case scenario. Yeah. I, I think these guys are trying to change the terms of the discussion. They, they're reflecting a, a certain anger. Uh, there's this view that, you know, the, that the United States has propped up the rest of the world for quite a long time uh, under this defense umbrella um, and uh, under these trade uh, arrangements which has freed up resources to undergird the social welfare state in Western Europe. Uh, to um, to free up resources for foreign company uh, companies to be subsidized by their governments to compete with U.S. companies, there is an interest in seeing um, uh, greater respect for the sacrifices that the United States has made, and so these guys are trying to drive a hard bargain and saying, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. We're the United States. We are um, a benevolent giant. Unlike the Romans and the Ottomans and the British Empire, you know, we've uh, done a lot uh, for, for the world altruistically. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with all that, but that is um, the premise, I think, behind they're trying to renegotiate um, some, some, some of these deals and agreements. But I, I don't think that they want to ruin the economy, uh, and this could just be um, an attempt to obtain leverage for opening up trade agreements and, and renegotiating them. Even, even so, they're playing with fire. Dan Eikenson directs trade policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.